Welcome to Energy Analyst Talk, a podcast from ESAI Energy. We are joined today on our Analyst Talk series by Andrew Reed, who heads up ESAI Energy's analysis of Russia and the CIS. Andrew, we have an OPEC meeting coming up in early December. What do you think Russia's strategy will be for this particular meeting? You know, I think about that a lot and a lot about uh, Russian-Saudi relations and, and even Russian foreign policy in the Middle East. And, you know, I think when it comes down to OPEC policy, there's a lot less there than we like to imagine. You can say that maybe about Russia's very busy policies in the Middle East. Does Russia have leverage in the OPEC Plus collaborative meetings? Well, not really. In fact, uh, if you look at them compared to the Saudis, you know, we're talking about a country with less spare capacity and probably that loses a lot less sleep over the oil price. A lot of people talk about Russia's spare capacity. Where would you put it today? Uh, well, it depends if you're talking three months, six months out or, or a year out. Uh, depending which end of those goalposts you're talking about, we could be talking about anywhere from half a million barrels a day to uh, 800,000 barrels per day. Well, sticking with the OPEC capacity definition, what could they bring on in 90 days if they wanted to? Uh, I'd be surprised if they could get past 250,000 barrels a day. What could they bring on in a year? I think they could get a little over half a million barrels a day. So they don't really have a lot of additional capacity that they're holding offline. Not really. A lot of it's new projects that takes time to ramp up. They, they don't have many switches they can flip on and off. So why does Russia participate in the OPEC Plus collaboration? Well, I think they like the idea of partnering with the Saudis and other OPEC members, and it kind of helps them expand their influence in the Middle East in a way that's really quite new for Russian foreign policy. Well, we've certainly seen a lot of changes in the situation in Syria in recent weeks. Uh, what is Russia's take on the region? What are they trying to accomplish? You know, I think alliances are all tactical and, and temporary in the Middle East. And whether you're talking about U.S. foreign policy or another outside power, we there are many examples of that over time. But I think the one constant is Russia's really thinking about its security interests, especially about stability and what they think of as their soft underbelly, that, that periphery south of Russia. And I think that's especially true, of course, today when you're talking about that the Shiite crescent, of course, Syria, uh, Iraq, and Iran by extension. It seems that Russia has had uh, a great deal of interest in having a political or even economic position in the region. Do you think there's a military role for Russia to play that's bigger than what it does today? I don't think so. You know, a lot of what they're doing is is kind of mediating, whether it's being a channel for communication or, or negotiation, uh, especially in Syria with, with the shifting uh, roles now that uh, you have Turkey, the Assad regime, and others all reacting to the uh, partial withdrawal of U.S. troops. And I think Russia's been helpful in communicating and negotiating how the different parties are going to realign in response to that. Uh, at the same time, if we look closer, say, at the Arab Gulf in the recent attacks on, on Saudi Arabia, of course, it was the U.S. that sent in Patriot missiles and, and other help. So really, when we're talking about Arab Gulf security, 
Russia certainly doesn't have a significant military commitment, and we wouldn't expect them to, to step in in that role. So this is a little bit more style than substance. Absolutely. Absolutely. They get high points for effort because they, they spend a lot of time being visible in the region and communicating. I mean, we've had high-level meetings between President Putin and the leaders of just about every power in the region. Even if you just look back at the past month or two, you've had meetings with uh, Netanyahu uh, from Israel, the leaders of Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and of course you have close collaboration with the Assad regime and the Iranians. So they're really communicating and having constructive relations with everyone that matters in the region at a time when U.S. really has broken communication channels with a lot of their rivals. So how would you say their relationship with Saudi Arabia differs from their relationship with Iran? Well, uh, you know, if you talk about more of the historic long-term Russian interest in security in the region that has bound Russian relations with the uh, the countries of that Shiite crescent across the northern part of the region, what OPEC cooperation has enabled is it's allowed Russia to arguably expand its influence to countries where they traditionally haven't had much in common. And of course, when you think about big power influence in the region, this is quite new for Russia to have constructive partner relations with the Saudis that, that go beyond and against the grain of, of what Russia has been doing in, in the northern part of the region. So how does their relationship with Iran differ from the relationship you just described with Saudi Arabia? Well, it's really the opposite, isn't it? Because in the case of Iran and that uh, the northern part of the region, that Shiite crescent, uh, we're talking about the same Russian interests that have existed under the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before that. Russia is always concerned about security in that area along its southern periphery. And the players will change, but the, the sensitivity to it will not. So Russia's security interests in the region really bind it closely to Iran. Their, their geopolitical interests align closely, uh, and that's not likely to change overnight. Can they be close to both Saudi Arabia and Iran? Isn't that a contradiction in a way? I believe it is. And if you look at the cornerstone of relations with each countries. You know, I think the last thing we'll ever see is Russia make some of its security and interests in the region, say, a bargaining chip for oil market negotiations with the Saudis. And that's why uh, I really think whether it's the security in the northern part or the partnering with the Saudis, Russia is really a status quo player. They're really not in the region to shake things up. And that's one reason they so consistently oppose the U.S. in the region. So to finish up. What do you think will happen at the December meeting? Do you think Russia and the others will agree to continue production restraint through all of 2020? I absolutely do, at least at a minimum. Uh, I think the Russians will go along with whatever the Saudis propose, as long as it's not a radical departure from the existing arrangement. Russia is not as worried about oil prices as the Saudis. They don't have that much productive capacity. They, they like the idea of partnering with the Saudis. So uh, just as in security, status quo, and don't shake things up. What if the Saudis ask them to cut by more? That's where uh, I think you would see some pushback. Uh, you do have Rusnev's CEO, Igor Sechin. He's, uh, he's not the decision maker, but he's a very influential figure in the Putin regime. And he stands out among the CEOs of Russia's oil companies in that he truly opposes cooperation with 
OPEC because he, he sees it as propping up oil prices and ceding market share to the U.S. Great. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. That was wonderful. Thanks. Anytime. Thank you for joining us on Energy Analyst Talk, a podcast from ESAI Energy.